take some tabs on what the sermon was here so I don't overlap too much or with ever with the with the previous Sunday's message. So you you remember Nelson brought the message on that I may know him. <clears throat> and in that sermon toward the end, I believe we were encouraged to um, participate in prayer, one for another, the importance of prayer, specifically being more uh, direct and specific in our prayers and, and uh, toward one toward another. You know, someone said if, if, you, if you pray general prayers, you'll get general answers. If you pray specific prayers, you'll get, you can expect to receive more specific answers. I think there's some some truth to that. But you know, prayer is one thing, it's easy to talk about. Seems like we're, we talk about it, we discuss it and the benefits and so on. But, you know, then to do it. Let's don't just talk about prayer, let's do it. And I, and I realize, realizing that prayer is a connection that we have with God, it opens up channels of favor where, where things and the grace of God can begin to flow. To us, And so we think of prayer as asking, maybe seeking and knocking, those type of things. There's also intercession. There's also confession. There, there's a lot of things that prayer does for us. Thanksgiving to God. But in all these endeavors, I think the underlying understanding needs to be that prayer opens up doors of change. It opens up uh, ways in which God can begin to, to work and change something for the better, can change the outcome. You know, God sometimes is waiting on us, I think. Um, it's not like his hands are tied, but in a sense, our prayers authorize God to begin to work and move in, in the heavenly realm. And our prayers, I believe, carry a weight and an influence toward God in causing his hand to move in our behalf. You know, there, there might be a couple ways to view prayer. And I think one of the elementary ways, and, and perhaps not just a uh, The, the elementary view of prayer might be that God is, is, is in the heavens and, and we pray to him and, and we plead and we beg and I'm, that's part of our supplications, I believe, is what the word supplication means to, to do that, to, to be earnest in our prayer. But not just the thought that God's just going to see how long we can go and then maybe if he gets tired of our prayer, he's going to answer it. Um, now, in a sense, that, that might not be wrong to do that. It's not an, but I think there's an inadequacy if we realize that's only what prayer is. More it's the idea that we can free up the hand of God so that he now has the authority to go ahead and work in our behalf. In the sense that we are told that what, what we bind on earth is, is bound in heaven. What we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. I believe that principle can apply to uh, spiritual life and to God operating 
on our behalf. Because God already knows what we have need of. And yet he still asks us to pray. And so thereby, I think, we free up the hands of God. We sanction him to, to, to work for us through prayer. I believe there's a sense in which we sign the consent form with God for things to proceed. So I'd like to just do that and bow our heads for prayer for the remainder his blessing on our sermon. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that there is joy in, in serving you and in knowing you, the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his presence. And right now, Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to bless our meeting together and bless the hearts and the minds of each one. And may you bring to our remembrance the things we have known that you would fortify those things in our in our knowledge of you that we would be better fit to serve you we just bless the uh, other messages that are being shared today um, many places congregations of worship that light and life would flow and your spirit would have uh, free course in our life to to teach us to comfort us, to edify us, to exhort us here today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Normally, I don't like to bring the same message twice. In, in fact, I've never done that since I started preaching. There's a couple reasons for that. One is um, we have... We have podcasts now with a lot of our churches. Our sermons are online, and, and my feeling is that even if I, I went to another congregation and shared the same message, there would be people there that may have already heard that message. Um, another reason is my family usually travels with me, and so I feel sorry for them to have to hear the same message more than once. And, and so I, I figure, well, I'm preaching to them, too. They may as well hear something new, even though we do have to repeat things often. But the Lord kind of led me to, to revamp the same sermon I preached last Sunday. I didn't really um, <clears throat> think it would lead to that because all through the week I, I had something I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach that. And I had it in my mind. I had the chapter and the verse. And... and Saturday morning came where I, I usually set apart things to, to really develop it. And each time I would do that, I, my mind kept going back to the previous Sunday's message. And so I thought, well, that's the Lord's way of, <clears throat> of telling me that he wants me to, to, to revisit what I preached last Sunday. And that is, I'd, I'd like to title this message... See that no man take your crown. See that no man take your crown. Maybe some of you would um, recognize that as a familiar verse. It's, it's not verbatim. But that verse comes from Revelation chapter 3. So I invite you to Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> I'd like to read verses 8. 
through 11. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Because, behold, I will make them to come and to worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold fast, which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. What is the significance of the crown? Maybe you think, well, this is just speaking of the reward that awaits the faithful. And I believe in, in, a, in a real sense that is what it is saying. It is the reward of the crown. But one of the things I would like us to consider is that the crown represents not just a reward, it represents authority in the sense that a king wears a crown. It, it represents many things you could say, but you know, it gives us an identity that we are part of a kingdom. You could say, let no, I believe Jesus is saying, let no man take thy authority. Let no man steal thy position. And some would say, well, this is all future. Uh, you know, why worry about something that, that hasn't happened yet? But I think part of the, the message today would be that <clears throat> to help us understand that a lot of the, um, in many regards, our, our Christian life, the spiritual realities that we are looking forward to have already happened. They are already taking place, are meant to take place in our experiences. In other words, you could, you could say, we're not in heaven yet, but Ephesians tells us, Ephesians 2.6 says, we are seated together in heavenly places. We are seated in Christ Jesus. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. There's um, a passage in Hebrews. I ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Thinking of what has happened in the present, or what should be happening in the present, or how to... Uh, how to direct our perspective to who we are in Christ Jesus. I, I think there's some beautiful words here in Hebrews 12, verse 22. And it is contrasting this to something that happened in the Old Testament when they had come to Mount Sinai, but it says, ye are come, but ye are come, and that, that is in a present sense, unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. 
That is what we are approaching to. We are coming into and we are agree in agreement with that, that it, we are in proximity to these divine influences and to these divine realities. I'd like to take you to uh, Psalms 56.13 just to uh, meditate a little bit more on this thought. Psalms 56 verse 13 says, For thou hast delivered my soul from death. When you see the word hast, think past. Hast is past. Thou hast delivered my soul from death. And from that foundation, from that understanding, he says, Wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling? In other words, in the future, because of what has already been established, the deliverance of God can be an expectation that we have as we go, as we go forward. That thou wilt, wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living. So the, the essence, I believe, of, of if you're a Christian, if you're born again, the essence of that is God's power is with you. When we have a power, you could say we also have a certain amount of authority in certain spheres of influence. Some people like to take that authority into the political realm. And they, they like to make that part of their endeavor as well as, as Christians. Now, for myself, I can't in good faith say that that is God's calling to dominate in the political realm. But there are certain spheres of influence that the church has. And I think the degree to which we walk in the authority of God is also the degree to which we walk in the power of God. First Peter 2.9 says this, But ye are, think, think presently, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God. I'd like to take you back to Revelation again, chapter 1. Thinking of how things are presently to be seen presently in our lives. And we think of Revelation as maybe being a future uh, prophecy. But as you begin the, the, uh, the first few verses of Revelation, you realize they are introductory to remarks to some extent. They're just, um, they're an introduction to what is to come. And within that introduction, there are, are doctrinal truths, I believe, that, that shine forth. We often see that in the epistles. We think, well, he's just giving his opening remarks, but there's often some nuggets of truth there. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, 
who bear record of the word of God and, all, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Notice the threefold responsibility that comes out there in verse three, to read, to hear, and to keep. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now here's the, here's the verse I really want to emphasize in all of this, verse six, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The understanding I would have there is that Jesus is saying that we are already kings and priests unto God and his father. We understand that too from um, Second Peter that we are a royal priesthood. So I think it is correct to say that that is what we already are. In the realms of the heavenly, we are kings and priests. But with that understanding, I want to I want to um, to kind of to work into that thought is that no man take thy crown. No man take thy identity from thee. In, in the, in the uh, Old Testament, the priests, both the, the priests and the kings wore crowns. The priests had a, a, a crown of pure gold, as I was understand. Engraved on that crown was holiness unto the Lord. And so, just, just in my own mind, you have a priestly crown and you also have a kingly crown. I believe the priestly crown could signify holiness. Um, it could signify intercession, a, a mediator between God and man in the sense that Jesus is that to us. But remember, Jesus says we're all priests. So there's a, there's a sense in which we are set apart as the priests were, there's a sense in which we intercede as the priests did one for another. The kingly crown then signifies, I believe, authority and position, rank, and dominion, preeminence. Maybe all those words are um, part of, of who we should be in standing uh, with God and, and being partners with God, the body of Christ in our settings. You know, in the, uh, there was a story in the book of, of um, in the story of Gideon, I'll say. I, I don't have the reference on my mind, but we know Gideon went out and conquered the Midianites. He was a mighty man of valor. He went forth and he was successful. And the God used him. And later on, toward the end of that war, and pretty much he had already uh, 
kind of wrapped up the war and, and the things that concern that battle, but there, there were two kings that um, he met up with a little later on. The, the two kings of Midian were Zeba and Zalmunna. Um, I don't know if I always pronounce words correctly from the Old Testament, but it'd be nice to have a, a little Hebrew um, accent that I could put on there and say them correctly. But Zeba and Zalmunna, these were the kings of, of Midian that he had captured, he had conquered. The war was basically over. And he had a little conversation with these two kings. He asked them a question. What manner of man were they whom you slew at Tabor? Now, we're Bible scholars tell us we're pretty much in the dark about what this battle of Tabor was. But Gideon wasn't in the dark. He, he knew about a battle. Apparently something had taken place where these kings in their, in their war had killed some of Gideon's men. He asked them, what kind of men were they? And they answered. Do you remember what they answered? As thou art, so were they. Each one resembled the children of a king. Could that be said of us? As sons and daughters of God, should we not carry an identity that, that maybe speaks m more than what we realize? It turned out that these were Gideon's brothers. Um, he recognized that by their response. And so he said, well, if you had saved them, I wouldn't have slain you. So <clears throat> ended up he, um, he slayed the kings for what they did. <clears throat> It made me think that Gideon must have carried himself with a certain uh, demeanor, a certain kingly appearance or behavior. They said, as thou art, so were these. So could our enemies perhaps say that of us? Maybe not necessarily our enemies, but those we, we rub shoulders with. Do we resemble a king? Maybe not so much outwardly, but how about our inward, our inner man? <clears throat> the spiritual posture we take. Are we wearing our crown in that respect? <clears throat> so let no man take thy crown Let no man take thy standing, your position, your authority. Because we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And I, I guess you could say part of our goals is to be like Jesus. So one of the things it says about Jesus is that he spoke as one that had authority. He spoke as one that... that kind of knew what he was talking about. And it's not like we go out and, and abuse our authority. I'm not talking about the abuse or the perverted authority we, we see in, in some circles where, where that is um, 
authority ends up being a bad word in our mind because of, of our experiences. But the authority of a spiritual authority, you could say, that, that belies our, maybe our outward demeanor, but at least we have that inner strength. In Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus said, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Not just serpents and scorpions, but over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. And in that, in that chapter where he sent out the 70, it says they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Through thy name. The Bible says to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That isn't just a, a little saying we tack on the end, but it, it, carries, it carries an importance in a and a need to do that because of the reality of God's presence and tapping into that. I think one of, one of the duties, one of our duties as, as servants of God and as, as servants of the kingdom is to, in a, in a certain sense, to disesteem the enemy. I might use an illustration from Joshua chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. You don't have to turn to it, but, you know, what was the message that the, the two spies brought back to Joshua? They said, Truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. Could it be said that the Lord is asking us to evaluate the territory in front of us? Is God asking us to make an evaluation, perhaps, of, of the land? To give a description of the land and, and bring a report back to him? What would that report be? What would we say to God about our circumstances and our prospects? for facing what he has given to us, would it be a bad report? Are we confident that, that our enemies are, even though they're giants, that they can be defeated? Turn to Isaiah chapter 14. I'd like to maybe help with a little understanding about the enemy that I think is interesting here. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. This is, I believe, a, a view of who Satan is. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, thou son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne upon the stars of God. 
I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? Is this, is this the man that has been causing all this trouble? I see that maybe as a picture of where we may be someday. Was this the roaring lion? Was this the accuser of the brethren? They shall look at, at thee and consider thee, the Lord says. Ezekiel 28, 19 says, All that know thee, all they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. In that context, it's talking about that cherub that fell. We believe it was Satan. You might say, is this the man that took my crown? Now, in spite of that, we, we know that Satan is still a, a, a roaring lion, and I don't want to, to say that he is not a factor. And we still have to reckon with his influence on our lives. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Apostle Paul says, Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. So when, when Paul says Satan hindered us, was he just making an excuse for what happened? I don't think he was making light of a situation. You know, we have the excuses we give sometimes for, for why something bad happened or, or whatever, but... I think he was communicating to us there is a reality of, of this thing of Satan hindering us in, in the sense that the, the spiritual realm of evil can influence things in the natural realm. I think that's something to, to be aware of. Not to, be, not to cause fear, but, but to prepare us and to be aware and I think that's why prayer is so important. It's such a necessity because through prayer we do divine warfare in, in the spiritual realm. And I think through our prayers and through our, our, our faith we activate the hand of God. We activate the, his servants of fire, his ministering spirits that are sent forth to minister on, on behalf of the heirs of salvation. And, and it says in that context that the angels hearken unto the, the voice of his word. So I, I see two ways which angels could be activated. One is the, the direct voice of God. But here's another thought. He, it says they, they respond to the voice of his word. In that sense, I believe maybe we could speak the word. In speaking the word, we aren't necessarily commanding the angels to, to do something, but they, they hear the word of God. They hear the truth of God, and something in that activates the angels of God to minister in our behalf. So I see three tools for spiritual warfare. 
One is the armor of God. It's very familiar. We know the armor of God. It's, it's about having our, going, our loins gird about with truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The unique thing about that is that the, the, the good news, the gospel, serves in the context of weaponry. And, and some translations say a readiness to carry the gospel of peace. I believe that does work as a shield, as, a, as an armor, a part of the armor of God. We have the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God activated by uh, quoting it, by speaking it, by memorizing it. This is how Jesus faced his temptations. Number two. Number two tool of warfare is, is prayer. Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplications in the spirit. And then there's a third one that's, that's not really in that chapter of Ephesians, but it's one I, I think is very relevant, is praise. You ever think how praise can serve as a tool in the realm of spiritual warfare? I invite you to, to uh, Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 20, 19 through 25. It says, The Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. And they rose up early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the Lord in the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. So I see in that, I guess we could read farther there, but I think you get the idea. The praise of God, the praise to God, I believe somehow activates a, a response on the part of God to, to work on behalf of us against our enemies and to bring about a victory. In that vein of thought, We notice in that chapter where they spoiled the enemy, they carried off many treasures from the enemy. And in uh, Isaiah, there's, there's this thought of how we can spoil, take the spoils of enemy. Isaiah 45, verse 2, it says, I will go before thee. This is God speaking um, about his, his presence and and he says, I make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass. I will cut asunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. 
that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. I, th I think there are spiritual applications we can make here. Now, usually we think we want to stay away from evil. We don't want to have anything to do with it. But is there a sense in which we can reap the spoils of the enemy in some regard? That, that God will create a, a transfer of, of the assets of the enemy into our hand because he can trust us with the things, his benefits. I don't know, it's just, it's the thought I have. I think it comes from the word of God there. We see that treasure there. Verse 14 of this same passage, Isaiah 45 says, Thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over unto thee and they shall be thine. Thou shalt come after thee, they shall come after thee. In chains they shall come over and they shall fall down unto thee and they shall make supplication unto thee saying, surely God is in thee and there is none else. There is no God. That is the response of the heathen. It reminds me of, of a New Testament teaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It talks about when, when an unlearned or, or, the, or the unbeliever come into your midst and they are convinced and they are convicted about the things of God and the work of God, they will, that they will report that God is in you of a truth. You know, it's one thing, we, we sing that song, would, would men know you've been with Jesus? As that song says, that's, that's very good, that, that's scriptural, because there were men that took account of, of certain others that they had been with Jesus. I think that thought comes from scripture. But I, I think another powerful uh, understanding is that I want men to know, I want my enemies to know that the God, that God is in me. Is that a worthy goal? I believe it is. I believe that's fair enough to pursue that men would know that we have been with Jesus, but also that God has been with us and God is working in our behalf. As a Christian who is in spiritual warfare, wherever you would find your lot in life at this point, Maybe you don't feel the, the, the battle. I think there is a battle. And, and maybe if we hide ourselves too much from that battle, we um, will be, be taken unawares in some way. But I want to put to flight the enemies and the armies of the aliens, like it says in Hebrews. I want to be a part of the heroes of faith, where it said, out of weakness, they were made strong. Because I think we all sense our weakness. And, and the, the Lord says, let the weak say, I am strong. Maybe we are tr truly weak. God says, let the weak say, I am strong. That is affirming what God is able to do in our behalf. Jesus says, what king going to war against another king? 
sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. I find it interesting that Jesus is putting us in the camp of, of the, the, the minority. Maybe our battles seem uh, a lot bigger, that, that there is um, not logical that we could win that victory. And maybe it appears that the deck is stacked against us in our, in our warfare. But that, I think it's there that Jesus is saying, put on your kingly armor, put your crown on, be aware that the battle belongs to the Lord, and we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You know, there was a story of a king that disguised himself. He didn't want people to know he, went, he, was, a, he was a king. It was Ahab. You remember how Ahab humbled himself. He was given some, some favor by God. And he went to fight against Ramath Gilead. The Lord did not direct him to do this. He just took up the fight on his own, out of his own um, sense of, of needing to be a king and engage in warfare because that's what kings do. But he he re actually received a prophecy from God, from the true prophet, do not go to war, God will not bless you. He persisted in going to war, but he said, you know what, I'm gonna disguise myself. Jehoshaphat, you dress like a king, they'll go after you, that's what happened. Jehoshaphat was pursued in that, in that army, in that battle. But it says he cried out to God, and God delivered Jehoshaphat. It didn't turn out so good for Ahab. At random, an hour, an arrow, an arrow from the enemy is shot at, at, at just, I think the, the thought there is that he, he randomly got shot by an hour. By, and that brought about his death. And so I, I see in that, don't go to battle hiding your identity. Let's wear our crowns. Let's carry our authority in the face of the battle. And the Lord will be with us. The Lord will grant us the desires of our heart to those whose heart is toward him. I ask a song leader to lead us in a song. To the church, song number 498. Song number 498.